Get ready for the greatest roast of all time. The Roast of Tom Brady. A Netflix live event happening May 5th. Hosted by Kevin Hart, the seven-time world champion gets his cleats held to the fire by famous friends and frenemies on an unforgettable night where everything is fair game. Tune in on May 5th at 5 p.m. Pacific time for The Roast of Tom Brady, live only on Netflix. Welcome to this week's episode of Best Camp of My Life, a podcast about MMA. Kind of, but not really, but kind of. I'm your host, Fernanda Prates, unless you believe that doesn't matter because everything is irrelevant and we're all just decaying organic matter doomed to be essentially inconsequential blips in the general scheme of existence. In which case, I guess I'm still your host, Fernanda Prates, in the sense that that is still my name and hosting this podcast is still my job, but also, who cares? What are even names and jobs and shows in light of the overwhelming nothingness of it all? Why are you even here listening to me? Why am I even here talking to you? What is the purpose of all this continuous performance of humanity when we all know deep down that we're nothing but precariously assembled sacks of bone, meat, and nervous endings who wear overcomplicated shoes and laugh at memes? What are even shoes and feet? What is anyone? or anything, really. Well, the bad news is that I can't answer any of these questions for you. The good news, though, is that it doesn't really matter. Whether reality is material or merely a shared delusion, whether you really are an actual thing or merely an intricate simulation of an actual thing, the point is that you are here, and I am here and we might as well make the most of it. So yes, for the purposes of this particular occasion, I am your host, Fernanda Prates, ready for our weekly appointment to discuss MMA and MMA-adjacent things and other things that have nothing to do with MMA. And while the jury of my peers has yet to determine whether that mission is in any way noble, important, or worthwhile, I can tell you right now, it is not a mission that I take lightly which is why I have once more recruited assistance in order to best complete it. Our very special guest this week is artist Chris Rainey, the brilliant mind behind the Fine Art of Violence Volume 1 and the recently released The Fine Art of Violence Volume 2. You might know Rainey from Twitter, where he often shares his amazing MMA artwork, and from Bloody Elbow, where he publishes cartoons twice a week. Not only is Rainey ridiculously talented and an extremely unique artistic mind in this space, but he's also cool as shit which I don't say just because he invited me to be part of the Fine Art of Violence Volume 2, though that is a bonus. Anyway, here's our chat. Enjoy it or don't. Just remember that nothing ever matters and death is inevitable. You know, I've been fortunate enough to have incredibly intelligent, talented, insightful, kind, cool guests on the show. Today, however, I have a guest who is all of those things 
and has invited me to be a part of his book, which may or may not mean he's automatically my favorite. Sorry to everyone else. Try having me on your books next time. Welcome to the podcast, Chris. Thank you so much. Great to be here. I I will start. I, I always ask this question of my guests, and I know it's kind of a cliche, but it's just something that I'm really intrigued by, especially somebody who does something so specific in the space of MMA, which is your art. So we'll start very much from the the beginning of the MMA portion. How, how, why MMA? How did this ludicrous, glorious sport come into your life? I was, uh, you know, in a kind of a disaster part of my life, you know, everything had kind of fallen apart. Oh. And uh, I went to a... That tracks. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I went to a meditation <laughs> retreat. I meditated for like 100 hours and 10 days. And uh, at the time, you know, I was in my early 30s. I was I was like, I know I'm an artist. Mm-hmm. I don't know what I'm going to do with it. And mm-hmm. uh, you let all your the crazy thoughts, kind of the dust settles. And then after a while, you're like, oh, I love to make artwork about the human body. I watch fighting all the time, mm-hmm. which is essentially as close as you can get to the the nude you know like and it all of mm-hmm. a sudden everything just kind of came became painfully obvious like that's your subject matter it's it's because it's a it's not subject matter it's a theme you can use fighting mm-hmm. to tell any number of stories you know and most basically the triumph and tragedy you know the quest for redemption and sometimes even comedy so was it one of those like retreats where you can't like speak and stuff? Oh yeah, you can't. You're not even supposed to make eye contact. Or you don't read, exercise, any of that stuff. I can understand the appeal of it, but it does sound like my worst nightmare. Like I don't know if people notice, but I like talking, so I feel like this would be my own personal hell. It uh, is. It could was, lead to some epiphanies, though. Dude, I was angry every minute I was there. I was I would just stomp around <laughs> with a scowl on my face and you know you you're essentially living like a monk and I would just think to myself I know what I, mm-hmm. I you know what I learned I'm not a damn monk you know <laughs> <laughs> But the funny thing is as soon as it was over I felt as mm-hmm. good as as though I had been I had spent 10 days like lying on a beach my body was like as relaxed my mind was relaxed mm-hmm. so even though I hated it I still got all the benefit of actual relaxation which was fascinating you you mentioned that then like you said that this phrase i knew it was an artist and i wanted to go a little bit further back on that and and excuse me like for the rest of the podcast i'm a very curious person about the artistic mind so Mm -hmm. sorry if i end up going way abstract on my questions but when you say that uh i mean i I think for all of us quote-unquote creatives Mm -hmm. there is a a a process to taking on these labels, right? Writer, artist. But uh, when did you, when did you start really thinking of yourself, seeing yourself as an artist? You know, I, I seriously, it sounds presumptuous, but it's like five, six years old. You you say these things, and the reason mm-hmm. I know is because I got mm. s- nothing but pushback. Can you imagine like being that young and be like, I'm going to be an artist when I grow up and your family is just like, hey, yeah. yeah, how about you become a doctor or a lawyer and then you can do that <laughs> in your spare time. And like, so from a very young mm-hmm. age, I had to kind of uh, fight to be one or or no, like I, I didn't really receive a lot of support for that. 
um, growing mm-hmm. up. And and I'll just get right out in front and say I was a complete shit show academically <laughs> and athletically. So mm-hmm. so I you know it's funny like there's this thing that you're good at. There's this thing that you have ideas for and vision mm-hmm. and aspirations and like everyone around you is like yeah don't do that. <laughs> I I I had similar experiences because I do totally understand what you're saying about it sounds presumptuous. When I was a kid, I guess I also wanted to be like a marine biologist and like be on NASA or whatever. But I also started writing very early on Mm -hmm. when I was, I did like little books. I would like staple pages together and have like, like these little series, like comic books. So I do kind of always felt like writing would be my thing since I was a kid, but also it wasn't very, it's not that it was discouraged, but like, I also liked drawing. I liked painting. I liked doing things with my hands and it wasn't very encouraged uh, the same way in my, in my house. So I think like, I can absolutely understand that. All right. And now I got kids and I'm like, oh yeah, I get, I understand why my parents were so terrified, you know? <laughs> 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 oh, that, that's why they didn't really uh, think this was a viable thing for my life. But okay, mm. I don't plan on having kids ever. I don't want them. But like, oh man, I totally no, nothing that. against <laughs> those of you who do procreate. <laughs> it's funny because a lot of the people who are like, "Oh, you're gonna change your mind," are people who don't have kids. The one who do. <laughs> It's like, uh, yeah. yeah, I can see why I wouldn't want this for you. I'm like, you have more power that. to you. Um, <laughs> <laughs> love them, but I can absolutely understand it. Uh, but yeah, so I kind of, I kind of understand not really having that that encouraged. But then, what did you do? You, you did mention you weren't excelling necessarily academically or athletically. Did you have uh, an alternative career path in mind? Like, what did you, you know, what did you do with that? In real life, in quote unquote real life, be in a band, be a, a small time, uh, you know, scam artist, a petty criminal, uh, really just a disaster of a human being. <laughs> you know, I'm a far better human being these days than I was growing up. Yeah, I was not a great person. I had when you can't thrive in society, uh, mm-hmm. I just not a. I, I, I wish I could say I had like some like. Well, I can do this, man. I I figured out how to be a bookkeeper. I was like, I can do simple math. Mm-hmm. This, these people seem to like, you know, no one bothers them. I just looked for a job where no one would bother me. Yeah. Because I, def- I felt like a misfit. So believe it or not, I was a bookkeeper for 17 years. While I was, wow. I was in a band. I was working for Bloody Elbow. I did a lot of different things. But I, I paid the rent and I was able to like keep my head above water by just doing grunt work, back office grunt mm-hmm. work that nobody wants to do. And uh, yeah. It was good. It was good. I, you know, I learned a lot. I learned a lot about how people are, how how businesses work, how mm-hmm. how humans act. You know, mm-hmm. <laughs> and you get to have a story. I mean, that's cool. Yeah, it's a lot less boring than oh, I went to college and did this thing, and which is where I'm at. I feel like yeah, no, no, <laughs> this I went, is way more literary. No, no, well, the good thing is, I went to art school. I went to two different colleges and it was wonderful mm-hmm. to go and be like, oh, I'm great at this. You know, I'm at like, I'm an artist. I go to art school. I enjoy learning things. I do ambitious things. I'm not like, it was great to go someplace and just mm-hmm. completely feel at home. 
Yeah. And I actually got better grades in my non-art classes because I, I think I was just comfortable because I knew it was, it was tertiary. And you did talk about, you know, having going into this this meditation retreat and, and having sort of the idea that this was something that you could do. But from having the idea to actually doing the thing, <laughs> that's a, mm-hmm. a whole separate process. So you came out and, and of there and how where did it how did it progress from there? In a very crooked, shitty way. Uh, <laughs> I was making uh, wood engravings. I was making wood engravings back then. And I had this uh, very grand idea to do a portrait of Anderson Silva. And I was like, you know, like to to do someone's face in a photorealistic manner or expressionistic manner. I was like, that in -hmm. in no way conveys who this man is. I was like, he literally, like a portrait of him has to be moving because it is Mm. his movement that is how you know who he is. I've always been like really into the idea that like you could see the silhouette of a fighter you know, whether it's like that, like hunchback po- posture of like a Gegar Mousasi, you know, mm-hmm. or like there are certain people like you just know who they are from their silhouette, from from the way they move their body. So I worked with uh, a cousin of mine who's like a film editor, and we stitched together a couple different sections of Anderson's fight with Forrest Griffin. Mm. And uh, we made like a 10, I think a 10 second gif out of it. And then I made a gigantic piece of wood that's like four feet tall, six feet wide. Mm-hmm. And I put 120 frames, you know, from the GIF, you know, and I engraved all of them into it. And I made a my own GIF, you know, of like all the different moments where he's dodging and in the matrix and knocking him down, knocking him out. And uh, that was like going to be my, you know, like your your, your hit single. You know, like the thing mm-hmm. that puts you on the map that people notice, mm-hmm. you know. So I did that. And I did a bunch of other wood engravings of, you know, different scenes, different fights, which, by the way, most of them I copied uh, photographs. And that's how I discovered who Esther Lin was, because mm-hmm. I would just search MMA photographs and I, you know, oh, that mm-hmm. one's good. That one's good. Oh, that's a really nice one. And after I'd done a couple, you know, this is me getting my footing I was like, I guess I should look up who did all these photos. And it turned out like 90% of them were by her. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I think that's an experience we all have. Mm-hmm. Uh, if <laughs> at some point we would start discovering MMA, like who's taking all these pictures? So you have like Josh Hedges, Jeff mm-hmm. Matari, but like I'd say the vast majority of them are Esther Lynn. It's just like, she's like the, the 1%. <laughs> yeah. And at, at the time though, was there a thing that, because that's to me, I didn't see it. I don't really see people doing a lot. Now I see it a lot more, but like even five years ago, I wasn't seeing a lot of people doing MMA related art or not exactly in the way that you do. Did you, apart from obviously we're talking about Esther and photos, like was there anybody in the space that you sort of, I don't know, I don't even know if inspired by it, but who showed you, oh, maybe this is a thing that can happen, or did you go in like sort of blind and just like, well, okay, I guess I guess there's no one here, might as well <laughs> fill up this space. Um, I, yes, I looked around. There were a couple people out there. Some of them are very good. Um, and I, I'm going to be a little, I don't want to sound haughty, but there's a lot of illustrators, but there's not a lot of artists Mm. I come from a fine art background and mm-hmm. an illustrator, you look at their work, you get it. 
it's got like, it either looks very much like what it's supposed to look like, or it tells Mm -hmm. a very quick story that you digest by way of the visual input, you know? Like, mm-hmm. a, I don't know, a businessman on a treadmill, you know, <laughs> like some, you know, like some sort of very digestible thing. Mm-hmm. And I come from a different background. I come from a fine arts background. Um, you know, like my minor is in art history and I like went to Italy to study Renaissance artwork. I think I'm more concerned with using fighting to tell bigger stories as opposed to drawing pictures of fighters. MMA is like this thing that was born in the 21st century. I know I know it started mm-hmm. in the 90s, but really it's yeah. a, it's a 21st century creation. It's like mm-hmm. postmodernism come to life, you know? These mm-hmm. these separate artistic forms all of a sudden are allowed to exist together and you, we're just like watching something brand new and I think as an artist you are supposed to tell the story of the world as it is happening around you. And that's why art lasts for centuries, mm-hmm. because you can look at it and understand something about a culture from another time. And mm-hmm. that is the perspective I'm coming from. That's why in the books, there's no cage. Uh, there's almost, there's no crowd. There's no nothing, because it's it, I'm telling the story of the human body, or I'm telling the story through the human body. Speaking of the books, um, the the fi- you we just published the the fine art of violence, uh, volume two, mm-hmm. and uh, volume one has been out since wh- when did it release? I don't remember. Oh, last September. Last September. Yeah, okay. I've been and crit- was I, the crushingly delayed by coronavirus. <laughs> I think everybody has been crushingly delayed yeah. by, by COVID. Mm-hmm. I would say that, yeah, we all get a pass of this, <laughs> this year. I honestly am, I'm 31, but I think I'm just going to celebrate my 31st birthday again. <laughs> like, I'm just going to pretend like I get an extra year. I yeah. feel like I've, you I'm, do. I'll you treat do. myself. Oh, yeah. Even though as a person, I treat myself all the time. Uh, but I wanted to go back to the book and the kind of process of it because I mentioned it on the intro. I am part of the group of contributors uh, of volume two, and I am very proud of that because I think it's just an astonishing group of people. And when we were, when you first approached me about the project, when we were discussing it, I remember you told me about the idea of making it be sort of an event, right? I don't know if you use the word document, but that's kind of what stuck to me, like a representation or, you know, a thing that us in MMA could have uh, sort of that spoke to that moment in time, but also in some cases about more, more, I don't don't know if permanent is the word, but uh, you did, it did strike me, it did stick with me when you when you mentioned that when you use that sort of the idea of 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 having this this piece of history of MMA. So I wanted to go back on that like let's start with the first one which I believe Josh Rosenblatt was the only writer, am I correct? Correct. Yeah, that's right. When did the idea for that first one come about? When I beca- I think in 2018 I was working for Bloody Elbow just publishing like once a week and I I was down in Texas visiting some in-laws and I knew that Kid Nate lived in in Austin where I was. And I was like, yo, man, come on, let's meet up. Let's meet up. Let's, you know, you know, you meet somebody from the internet, you know, that's the best. 
<laughs> so uh, he came down to my mother-in-law's house, and I just I just pitched him with um, mm. with this idea. Like I grew up watching these, uh, reading the newspaper. Then in New York, there was this guy Bill Gallo who did a daily cartoon about mm-hmm. whatever was happening in the New York. Um, sports teams or boxing. He was actually a big mm. boxing guy, but he used to draw George Steinbrenner as uh, who, mm. who was the owner of the Yankees. I should say for anyone mm-hmm. listening, as well, I know uh, for Sy- from Seinfeld, basically. Right, exactly. exactly. <laughs> so he used to draw him as a World War One German general, you know, with the pointed helmet, mm-hmm. you know, and he used to call him Steingrabber. And it's funny because at the time I wasn't even thinking about it, but of course I've gone on to make a. A Dana White, uh, you know, uh, icon of sorts, you know, as my uh, mm-hmm. whatever, you know, the punching up bag. Uh, anyway, I talked my way into getting a, a daily cartoon. And once I did, I was able to quit my job as a bookkeeper. And mm-hmm. now I can um, focus on, I can do something else besides, you know, work a jo- work two jobs. And I was like, man, I'm I'm gonna do the thing that I wish someone would hire me to do. I'm gonna do it myself. Mm. I'm gonna make this thing, partially because it's very hard to get someone to believe in you. It's hard to get someone to see something that doesn't exist in your own that you can see in your own mind. Mm-hmm. I was like, look, all I want to do is watch these fights, and I want to draw these things, and you know, just tell a bigger a bigger story, something that's evergreen. That's the word I think you, I might have said to you. I've been. When I pitch this idea to people, it's like, I want something that's going to, like a fan, five years, 10 years from now, can pick up this book and enjoy it, can understand what was happening at that time, and can, it it just doesn't, uh, what is the word? It like, it transcends the the hamster wheel, you know, that's the, Mm -hmm. that is MMA, the schedule. I'm sorry, I get really derailed when I talk about this. (laughs) No, it's, this is, and it's making, you're making a lot more sense than I ever do on this podcast. If anything, (laughs) you're spoiling our listeners with coherence. (laughs) Don't get used to it, everyone. It's temporary. Um, (laughs) I absolutely understand that. And one thing that I find interesting when you talk about like making this thing that in general, in art and any creative endeavors, I do feel like the most successful ones, not in terms of obviously money, but in terms of achieving your goal of speaking to your audience is the kind that is kind of born from, and I hate how pretentious I sound saying this, by the way, but- I Hey, look, you got this. me as a guest. Um, You're going to sound pretentious if we got, you know, it just happens. I'm sorry. <laughs> I have an artiste, okay? <laughs> I get to speak like an artiste. Uh, but, you know, the work that is born out of this, you know what? I, I'm going to do a thing that I would like to read, or watch yeah. or see, you exactly. know, like, and that's kind of what I try to do. And it ends up, I think, being your best work just because it's, it doesn't come from anything else other than you and your intuition and your, and sometimes it flops sure. <laughs> too, oh, yeah, but that's yeah. part of it. That's yeah. part of the, the process. I talked with uh, Edward Cow, who does two amazing illustrations yeah. in the book. Mm-hmm. And uh, he was like, Man, I don't know how you do those. Uh, you know, I draw live, you know, on Saturday nights when UFC yeah. is happening. I do those charcoal drawings. Mm-hmm. He's like, I don't know how you do that. And I, I didn't say it at the time, but it's like, I am not afraid to make bad work. Mm. I uh, One thing I learned. That's amazing. Yeah. If you, if you go, this is the thing about go, going to a museum and looking mm. at, um, uh, a retrospective of somebody like like a Picasso, right? Mm-hmm. 
I had like my my eureka moment. I think at one of his, either him or like Rembrandt. You know, you go see these guys who are just. Oh, it's you're almost not allowed to not like them. You know, they're like the Beatles yeah. and the Rolling Stones. You yeah. go, you see them, and you're like, oh, of course, they didn't just make great work. They made a lot of work. <laughs> and if you yep. make a lot of work, eventually you're gonna make great work. Yeah. And Picasso was notoriously prolific. Oh, unbelievably, unbelievably so. And that's, honestly, it's one of the biggest challenges of my life, particularly because I am a perfectionist. And I don't say that in a humble brag way, because I think when you say that, a lot of people think, ah, you know, perfectionist, like Mm -hmm. everything she does is amazing. That is not at all what I mean by that. It's to the point where it's crippling. To the point yeah. where it's like, I need, I I am often, I stop before I do something because I'm so afraid that it's not going to be good that I don't do it. And my whole challenge and the reason why I even started podcasting, even though I didn't know the first thing about it was, you know, okay, maybe I'll suck, but mm-hmm. like I can, I have to suck. For a little bit. Yeah. So to me, when you say that, it just sounds like very, um, I think it's just a mature realization to have that it's like, you know what? I, not everything I do is going to be great and not everybody's going to love it. And that's okay because it's so hard as a creator to accept that not everything's going to like what you create. True, true. Um, I, I got some great advice uh, from listening to a podcast uh, by these these three women who are in the comic book industry, and uh, it's called Dirty Old Ladies is the name of the podcast. And mm. you know they're writers, editors, publishers. You know they they own their own. Mm-hmm. One owns a publishing house, and one of them said, um, you know, and this is when I was like, I didn't have a job in the MME media. I was really down and out for a while, and yeah. this woman said. If you if it takes you three weeks to make a page, but it's the most beautiful thing in the world every time, I'll be a fan of your work, but I don't really know that I can work with you. Mm-hmm. However, if you make middle-of-the-road work, but you never, ever miss a deadline, I will have work for you for the rest of your life. And that yeah. really stuck out to me. And that's when I started you know, being way less precious about what I put out there. Mm-hmm. And I focused way more on consistency. And dude, there's there's times when I put out stuff that I'm not proud of, you know, but mm-hmm. I have deadlines, you know, I publish yeah. a couple times a week, every week. I have to make this book. I have yeah. to make this book once a year, you know, and I just got to do it. And I just do it. And I put it out there and I know, but it, I'm more, whenever I talk to other artists about how much they doubt their own work or they finish a piece and they don't feel good about it i always tell them put it away look at it in 10 years and then you'll know Mm -hmm. if it's good or not don't even bother judging yourself yeah because you're you're gonna look at it with like certain eyes and it's crazy because consciously we know that like i right absolutely know all of these processes when i'm like staring at a thing i did and Mm -hmm. still like i can't talk myself out of it yeah. And it's such a like a cycle. And I feel like I'm getting better at it with time. But that's absolutely true. Like you have to turn in work. Exactly. And it's not gonna be the best work you've ever did. Yeah. Every time. <laughs> it's 
but it's a process. Yeah. It all sounds very rational, and I'm trying to teach my brain to feel that way about things. Yeah. But I'm glad you're one step ahead of me, Chris. Maybe I should meditate hey, for you know, a little bit and have a little bit of an illumination. You know what? Just know ahead of time that it sucks and it's okay. It's okay to hate it, you know? <laughs> one thing that was a real intense learning experience was that this book had nine people that I worked with. Mm -hmm. And that was that was hard. That was like like a it wasn't difficult. It was more humbling. Like this nine people, they all speak a different way. They all process information differently. I had different pitches to everyone. Mm -hmm. And in your case, I was like, boom, I came in fully formed. Like that was great. And like Poor Eugene S. Robinson. I was like, hey, man, I've been listening to you talk about John Jones and Daniel Cormier for like years. You know, I love your take on them. I want you to write this. And he's like, yeah, man, this is way too vague. I don't really know what you want. And I just felt like the biggest dummy, you know? And I was like, I blew it. I blew it. I can't believe it. I've been listening to this guy talk for like uh, years and I had my chance and I can't believe I fucked it up, you know? But it worked out. We did it! Yay! Mm -hmm. <laughs> that's the that's the thing about us, right? But I, I was gonna ask you about that because you do in the book, uh, volume two, which again everybody is available. Um, is the hardcover still? Is it sold out? It is not sold out yet. I got about maybe fifteen copies left, and then uh, we'll check demand and probably do a second run. I don't know. I'll do a second run. The way I did it this time was I reprinted volume one when I got volume two made. You know, mm -hmm. uh, I basically, uh, this is a boutique operation I'm running. Yeah. You know, I, I, I see I have a lot of repeat, you know, people that would, that was a super heartening, you know, the people who bought the book, who bought volume two, like other people who bought volume one. I'm, I'm so heartened by that. So, uh, I keep a list. I keep an email list of everybody who's like, oh, I missed it. And then I email them. I'm like, heads up. Mm -hmm. I'm going to do it again. Boom. Then they get it. So everybody, there's still like 15 copies left. And this is on a Tuesday. So yeah. who knows? Maybe even less so tomorrow. Buy it because it's cool. And I'm in it. But yeah. also other people who are cooler than me. So buy that. You can only <laughs> get it at chrisreeny.com. chrisreeny.com. I mentioned that in the intro and we're going to. Plug it again several times, but I think it's pretty simple, people. ChrisTrini.com. Come on. Um, one thing that you did mention in the book and the final, like at the end of it, you talk about the, this experience, the difficulty of actually dealing with all these different writers. And I wanted to ask you about that because I, I know I know my, my kind and where we can be challenging, we can be bad with deadlines <laughs> hard to reach uh speaking maybe for myself i will never here. betray that <laughs> i will betray myself and say that yes uh chris had to 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 uh be on top of things with me i had to lean I on some really people bad. i do <laughs> i had to get on the phone i had to i had to summon my inner ted lasso more more than once and just be like all right i'm here with the pep talk let's do this yes i did do that i will never betray who is the exceptional person that like met every deadline faster than i could imagine and then who needed some encouragement that's fine you know what i'll tell you a funny story um 20, 20 years ago, 22 years ago, uh, one of my best friends and I, we were in art school, and one of our professors 
we had no idea was fabulously wealthy. And she just gave away grants mm. to go get a fellowship to go paint in Vermont and live up there for free and live it basically live in an art, artist community for four weeks and just pra- practice. Yeah, she's a, amazing. Yeah, she's just an angel. Didn't even have to fill out paperwork. Mm. I mean, when she told us about it, I went home and told my parents, they're like, don't believe nothing this lady tells you until you get it in writing, you know? (laughs) (laughs) Oh, Lord. But it was this place called the VSC, Vermont Studio Center. And we'd go up there and there'd be like 50 people a month, you know? And a lot of them, man, Mm -hmm. these were grownups. These were people who had careers or they were like college professors who squirreled away the money and now they spent the summer working on their craft or their 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 they have gallery show or they, and then there were a couple writers there and my buddy and I loved antagonizing the writers they was just so <laughs> serious you know the, the other artists are just like oh awesome can I go in your studio can I see how you do things you know it was just like a love fest and the writers were like the grumpiest people they were so solitary it was just a bunch of lone wolves we like and we ended up getting this grant three years in a row and we, by the end, we just knew. It's like, we're going to find a couple writers and we are going to just fucking just like buddy up with them. We're going to make them have fun. <laughs> we are going to make them get out and go, go get drunk. Neither he, neither he nor I got used to drink, but we would make people go out to the bar and just like have a good time. Just like the writer rescuers. A hundred percent. and Saving have, us from our tortured souls. To, it's totally true. You guys need it, man. You do. <laughs> <laughs> oh, trust me. I don't need to be invited twice to go drinking and do dumb shit. Like that. <laughs> oh, so I have a, a half-hearted invitation will do yeah <laughs> i would argue that's because we're like tortured on the and i don't i say i i i don't i talked about the label i have a very tough time calling myself a writer mm-hmm. i believe i'm a person who writes things <laughs> those are different things i feel like i don't but i do feel like most a lot of the torture experienced by actual legitimate writers is, are like it's the same that i experience and i just think we're just like yeah, like we're just com- constantly tormented well, by you, things. You are. <laughs> That's probably why. You are. You, are. you, you know who want, we, they would get guests up there when we'd go. And uh, one of them was, uh, you know, George Saunders, the guy who did a, he's a real, he does a lot of short stories, he did a bad time in Civil War land and uh, mm. things like that. Anyway, he, I had no idea he was famous and successful so me and my buddy just shot the shit with him which was great i probably would have mm-hmm. never done that today but he had a great story or at least comment about the the life's work of an artist versus a writer mm-hmm. where he's like you know you artists are lucky you 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 do these sculptures or these paintings and they take up space you know you can look at it and be like look at that i did mm-hmm. that you know at the end of your you know like a writer at the end of your life your life's work fits on a floppy disk you know <laughs> <laughs> and there is a, a a kind of like crushingness to that you know and you're like all right your life's work is like you know on a microchip <laughs> all that all that sweat and tears for for nothing that's why i always say like my goal is to one day write a book, uh-huh. but I'll write one and stop. 
Like <laughs> I've established that I I think when you continuously strive to do things, you're just like setting yourself up for disappointment. It becomes a cycle. You're always going to be chasing something. So I'll do a book and stop. Like maybe go like full J.D. Salinger, like move to like become a hermit and go insane. Like it still it, could happen. Look, it's a valid uh, business like- model. <laughs> it is a totally valid. It, it works. It, it's got proven success, you know, like Kurt Cobain. I, I always occasionally see somebody say like, you think people would love him if he was like, you know, 55 and like, you know, like John, what's his name? Uh, Johnny Rotten, who's like a super right winger now, you know, you think he would have aged that way? Maybe, you know? <laughs> so I feel like I'll do a book and hopefully we'll sell enough um, and I'll just like retire and chill forever like this. I did a thing. Yeah. Nobody can take that away from me. So that's, that's kids. Yeah. <laughs> Children who no, are I'm listening the to opposite this. view. I tell people yeah. I'm going to do the opposite. I'm going to make a book a year until I'm mm. dead. And then uh, that's like, it's like the funny way of saying it, but I really do think that the fine art of violence is something I can do for the rest of my life because it's, it's about something bigger than MMA, but MMA is the language that I want to tell that story in, but mm-hmm. I would love it if this does, uh, become my legacy and that it can outlive me that i can pass this on that it becomes an institution within mma mm-hmm. and that i can hand the reins off to somebody else so i can just be like an old man who just comments on whether somebody's writing is good or whether their art is good <laughs> and you the know dream. exactly exactly <laughs> <laughs> you can be just a consultant exactly. that's my dream you know? become a consultant <laughs> I feel like my dream is to be one of those people who are just hired for charisma, like to do appearances. Oh my God. Yeah. 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 <laughs> comment on things and just be there and just like charm the environment. Yep. Paid the high like five. That's the goal. <laughs> <laughs> but wasn't it, was it super stressful though, the process to make the book? Particularly, yeah. I would imagine, which one was the most stressful, you think? Volume two. Oh, yeah. Volume two was, yeah. was so awful. Uh, I, I had a lot of anxiety about being able to do enough work, whether the work I did was good mm-hmm. enough, whether it was qu- I, mm-hmm. I, I had time, you know, I was able to do 100 images by myself for volume one, you know, and Josh and mm-hmm. I have worked together at Vice and mm-hmm. I feel like, you know, he's a gift. I, I tell him things and he writes them and I, he writes them better than I ever could have, you know, mm-hmm. and, you know, we had worked together at Fightland and he kind of. It was almost like you you pick up right where you left off, you know, like five, mm-hmm. six years went by and boom, no problem. He gets it. And then I found out later, the poor guy had to learn so much art history because a lot of my work references oh. different periods of art history. And he's like, I don't know what any of mm-hmm. these things are. He's like Googling Wikipedia, you know, like the Renaissance and cartoon animation from the 50s because that's, you know, whatever I want. I, I do whatever I want, you know, that's nice. But this time... I was really worried. And I got to say, you know, the work that the writers did is just beautiful. You know, it's, it's, it's what I wanted, what I've always wanted. You know, there, a lot of the people here, I, mm-hmm. I always, I wanted to work with them. I wished my work could have been alongside, you know, like Chuck Mendenhall. You know, I, mm-hmm. believe it or not, I actually have a piece of artwork in one of his more famous uh, articles, the one uh, Strange Brew. But even that, it was very, very disjointed and it was at a tough time in my life. And now mm-hmm. to feel like, wow, this is this is what I've wanted for so long to be associated with people I admire. 
but it was really the other artists like Edward Cowell and Adam Nelson mm-hmm. who who helped me you know I've admired them I've talked to them behind Adam especially also known as Gorilla the Bear on uh Instagram and and uh Twitter I mean that guy he I I told him you you saved the day and you stole the show he he gave me so much artwork and and he just was there. He was there, he was there to to save the day. Let's just put it that way. I, I'm so grateful to them that people so talented wanted to be a part of this. And so far, how has the reception been? I mean, I know you've gone on a podcast press tour. Mm-hmm. I don't know if I'm the final stop, but you've been really, really hitting the the MMA podcast. And it's funny because it really it makes us think about how big podcasts are for MMA for the world, I guess. But uh, I think they really became like a go-to spot for MMA content, but you've been, you know, been able to promote your work in all these different outlets and everything. How has the, the reception been so far? It's been really good. I, I feel really grateful. I just, I changed my approach this time. You know, the, the first time mm. around, I was like approaching like the big websites and, you know, mm-hmm. my association with Bloody Elbow made it so that certain places couldn't cover me, okay. you know, even though it was self-produced. Yeah. And this time I was like, you know what? I'm going to I'm going to reach out to influencers. Um you know, like people with like funny accounts that make mm-hmm. jokes and memes. Uh you know, there's the stand-up comedian Dan Lamort. Like he's a big MMA mm-hmm. fan. Um Kaposa, yeah. you know, like Kaposa like you know, an the, entity. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Kaposa. And here ready you want your I don't know if this is an exclusive. I don't know if I told anybody. Kaposa is going to be one of the contributors to volume 3. Oh, that's amazing. Uh, yeah, that's so I w- cool. Yeah, I want to grow the 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 perception of of who the tastemakers are. And I think that the response to volume look, the answer is I printed more books and I sold more books. And oh, a lot of people bought the reprint of volume 1. I I couldn't believe it. I, I'm just so thrilled. Uh, the response has been great. I got one review in a non-MMA centric newsletter. <laughs> <laughs> so was, you know, I mean, if that to me is like, boom, that, that that's it. That's the shining star. One thing that we talked a little bit about offline um, that you on this to promote on the, the, the earlier, uh, I guess, tweets and everything that you used to to promote the vo- volume two. There's this time lapse of Jose Aldo, which mm-hmm. I think is just amazing. Just a very simple quote-unquote mm-hmm. and sort of haunting kind of beautiful imagery and that is not just because i'm an aldo stan even <sighs> though that does play a part in it <laughs> i have to declare my aldo fandom at least uh one every two episodes it's like the unwritten full movie. disclosure right <laughs> just have to do it it's it's in my contract uh but we were talking about like sort of technology quote-unquote technology instead of incorporating it i am so bad with it i'm Mm -hmm. just that person that is always like three steps behind everything that's happening like what is a tiktok i don't know like i catch up eventually but by the time i do we've moved on to something else and i've accepted that about myself but uh in terms of you and your work like how has it been for you to sort of incorporate that and make that part of your art as well it is uh, a huge challenge um, because I had a lot of trouble learning mm-hmm. as a kid, I think. Sometimes uh, I'm very anxious about learning stuff, even though I 
crave knowledge mm, you know oh, uh, same. that's the whole reason i like <laughs> mma because I, I would watch videos of fights and then i hit a point mm. where i was like i don't understand why this person is winning you know as i that's mm-hmm. really like the that was the seed to why i care about mma at all but technology man it's hard it's hard for me to to make those those leaps and I, i'm working very hard to to really grow so in mm. 2020 for the first time ever i i bought an ipad and an apple pencil i'd been i'd been researching uh, art programs since 2014 and in 2020 i finally pulled the trigger and bought you know i bought an ipad pro and i i got procreate which i had been reading about mm-hmm. and watching other people make videos of making art and i was like this is real this might be it this is it and, you know and then like you know takes a half a decade to pull the trigger that's how i am and that, that Jose Aldo piece is my first digital painting, mm-hmm. you know, that is, and, and I will give a shout out to uh, artist Marco Bucci, who is also mm-hmm. a huge MMA fan. I made that painting using one of his tutorials. Okay. You know, you're just watching me like, just like Marco said, do it. I'm going to do it, you know, like, <laughs> step by step, you know, I, it was also like just, I, I don't know how it is for you for learning things. But I definitely need like a eureka moment that allows me to, that allows the step-by-step learning to take place. I kind of need both of those things. You know, it's hard to make incremental uh, progress without like a, like an inception point. Uh, Changing gears just a little bit. I, I was listening to your uh, participation on the Sound of Violence podcast, which, by the way, shout out to those guys who are not only super cool, but are doing the Lord's work <laughs> listening to our <laughs> to all of our shows every week. Yeah, they were amazing. That's a dedicated duo. <laughs> they were great. They had some really good questions. I really like them. I think they're cool peeps and the show is really good. Agreed. Um, but I, one thing that really stood out to me we when when they asked about um like fighters who were artistically inclined and stuff you mentioned a few but you talked about Angela Hill who I know obviously is an artist because I follow her on social media and everything else but uh you mentioned she went to the super prestigious school and all these things that I didn't uh, necessarily know about her and I I was thinking you know like about how this is such an easily marketable thing, like how this is such a cool part of a fighter's personality and background that isn't necessarily used by the UFC at all in promoting her. Um, And I don't know, I'm kind of at the opinion that the UFC has this kind of issue with athlete promotion that they miss a lot of opportunities because they sometimes focus on sort of like low-hanging fruits and and in obvious storylines and sometimes miss out on the these sort of rich narratives so going from that i wanted to ask you like if if this is kind of something that you feel that way too like how do you feel about the way that the ufc promotes their athletes i have very strong opinions about that i think that the ufc doesn't have (laughs) anyone to promote their athletes I think the UFC is in the business of promoting the UFC. Mm. And uh, mm. I think that I can find more instances of fighter demotion, you know, uh, you know, like than mm-hmm. promotion. Uh, 
yeah. th- their track record over the past, I don't know, man, like what, three years or so has been atrocious. They don't, mm. their, their, their methodology is antiquated. They're, and, and I think we're in a, a time where um, revenue is a, a, a substitution for success. And the more money you make, the more right you must be. So mm-hmm. I, I guess I just feel like the, there's something very unremarkable about them and the, in comparison to what they have on their hands. Right. That's a good way to put it. You know, like these, they don't know what they have and they, they can't quite, they can't quite say out loud what they want, which is like, I mm. want dumb, poor people who are willing to like eat my crumbs because they'll just do whatever I say. I, I was just having a conversation with my wife about this because she watches an unbelievable amount of MMA. Mm. How the the epidemic of once a fighter realizes their value, or more apparently, more importantly, once a fighter realizes how much they've given, how much they've sacrificed, mm-hmm. that's the moment where it is the younger person will it who who is just like them five ten years previously is like heck i'll do it for half the price you know yeah and it happens all the way to the top that that tweet by Derek lewis was just a heartbreaker i'll fight him for seven million you know like Mm -hmm. i'll do it you know like they can't wait to cut their 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 peers off at the knees and i i i have like I have my my idea, which I feel is like sacrilege to say, but I feel like I know I know how the fighters t- should negotiate. They should refuse to take a fight for the last quarter of the year. Every single fighter should just refu- just be hurt, be sick, be tired, your leg hurts. Just don't take a fight between October, November, and December, and you will cripple the UFC. They will not make their 42 events. They will not get their ESPN bonus and Mm. they will see their true value. But that would demand a type of unified action that we know can't happen, I think, in the way can't is a strong word, but that we know won't happen. And of course, of course, because they're broke. It, it can't happen because they're broke. Exactly. Like, that's the thing, right? Like, when you see Derek Lewis, like, just emerge to sort of shoot down this opportunity for, like, the, the little man to rise up against, the, you know, the big, powerful corporation, mm-hmm. it is heartbreaking. And at the same time, entirely understandable because the whole, like, system is based around this lack of unity, right? Like, yeah. they, it is... People call it a selfish sport, and it is in a way because it is all about individual performance at the end of the day and, you know, the dynamics that come with that. But at the same time, I feel like it's so beneficial that the way even, right, like contracts, like pay is in public, like everything is shrouded in secrecy, like everything is done in a way that fosters this atmosphere of you know, we, I need to look out for my, and it's such a short career. It's such, the opportunities are so scarce. So a fighter feels like, you know, if I don't take this opportunity now, you know, I might never have it again. And then I remember that was a conversation when uh, Durinho, Gilbert Burns took mm-hmm. the fight um, against uh, uh, Usman, right? That that uh, Masvidal, I think, refused. Uh, right, right, I, right. It gets confused in my mind. I have shitty memory, but I think that's kind of what it happened. And uh, I saw some people going like that. That's the equivalent of sort of being a scab. Like you take that fight. I'm like, uh, not quite. 
not quite. <laughs> I think we're better served having the conversations, like you said, about why why this happens, like who benefits and why right. they can't really say no. And like you said, it really is as simple as they're broke. Uh, unfortunately, that's really the reality of yeah. the sport. Very few people can do what Joan Jones is doing. And I don't even know how long he can do it for um, to just sit out for a year and try to call his own shots. So it is really, it's heartbreaking. It's unfortunate because whenever we have these conversations about, you know, and people ask me like, what do you think? Why do you think unionizing is so difficult? Like, what, what do you think is the solution? I'm kind of like stumped. I don't know because it's just such a weird it's just such a difficult like system to even like it, it it has to begin i think with like transparency and even that is such a big ask yeah that i don't know it's just i don't know it is a heartbreaker because it is i think we all who consume the sport as much as we do right not just work with it but like we're so exposed to the plight of the fighter and mm. what it really means uh to be a fighter and the toll it takes and that it's really just difficult to accept that they have to settle for so little it's true i've i've thought quite a lot about a way to uh mount you know a fighter union uh kind of propaganda uh, uh what's the word i'm looking for campaign uh because it's mm. something I care about and something I've thought a lot about. Like, wow, could I make like posters in the style of like Soviet worker propaganda, you know, like 4 billion versus, you know, 42 shows, mm -hmm. you know, like the sale versus, oh yeah, it was a uh, 4B versus W2, you know, like the idea that this mm. UFC was sold for $4 billion and what the fighters need is like W2 tax classification, you know? And there's, yeah. there's just like, it's, it's kind of endless, but I think one of the things that I think might resonate with fighters is the idea that if you break a bone, it doesn't matter if you're a prelim fighter or, or a champion, your bone is still broken. You know, mm -hmm. the, you, the, 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 the money that you earn is basically a carrot on a stick that you're never going to get, but the price that you pay is the mm -hmm. same whether you're at the bottom of the ladder or the top of the heap. And I think that it, there's a um, there's a narrative there that if you could appeal to the fighter's sense of self and and really link it to their their body, there's a there's a chance. And I know I might just be a dreamer, you know, but I, I think a lot about how do you talk to fighters because they're the ones who need to hear the message. And if you mm -hmm. can make it about the price that they pay because they're they're always willing to talk about the sacrifice that, that they make they're willing mm -hmm. to talk about the, the the physical toll and it's like you need to get paid today because you're paying the price today and that's uh that when you talked about them being willing to talk about it i mentioned i always mentioned the survey we did with the athletic because i feel like it exposed a lot of these um thoughts that mm -hmm. fighters aren't necessarily comfortable expressing publicly because we know that it doesn't really pan out for them well when they do, yeah. uh, but they could anonymously. And I do feel um, a little, I, that's a word I use occasionally here, optimistic. I do think, I don't know if optimism is the word, but I do think that we are having conversations and thinking about these things and talking about these things in a way now that we did in like three years ago, mm -hmm. you know, like 
so I do kind of feel like we're tr- maybe like trending into a nice, an interesting direction. Like even the fact that Logan Paul, uh, Jake Paul, I don't even know which Paul it was. I'm an old lady. I'm sorry, everyone. One <laughs> of the two. Uh, one of the, the the blonde individuals who box occasionally. Um, that that they're using the fact that the, the fighters are being screwed out of money in the UFC as trolling material. I feel like that's, a good example of it, of just being like, hey, we're actually talking about this openly and publicly now. Like, this is a step in the right direction. I don't know. Do you do you have any optimism about this, I guess, is, is my question. The, the best uh, perspective that I can realistically take is uh, I, I grew up as a baseball fan, and I, I read a lot mm-hmm. about, you know, stories in the past. And they, they were ba- baseball players in the early 20th century are kind of like fighters today. No rights. And especially like the, if you follow John Nash and his uh, economical uh, work yeah, that he's done, uh, baseball used to have a monopsony on the, the players. And I see a lot of parallels. And I also see that, you know, like in, you know, it took a long time. And I think about MMA in, in those terms, and it makes me feel like, I don't know, maybe when I'm like 60 or 70, they'll get it together. Like, it sometimes it takes that much time. Um, you need this, uh, you need a flashpoint, and you don't know when it's going to happen. I try to think about it in long in a long-term way, because if you think about it in terms of today, you'll you'll get depressed. You'll get sad. You know, and yeah. if you take a, like a longer view, there's a chance. There's a chance that uh, that the fighters will stop fighting and negotiate for a percentage of the television rights, like a regular sports team. Here's here's <laughs> are you ready. Here's here's how I've explained this to people who are outside of the the MMA bubble. The UFC pays the fighters as though they are. Um, a, a like boxing you know like we have an event we pay you it's just a, a one-off thing like you show up you fight and maybe you'll fight again in three to six months but the ufc sells its product to espn <clears throat> like a league they sell a set number of a, of a set amount of content that comes in the form of tough fight nights pay-per-views they, what they sell to ESPN is more similar to Major League Baseball than it is to uh, one-off events like boxing. So they mm-hmm. pay their fighters like in this, um, what's the word I'm looking for? Um, like a individual event basis, but yeah. they sell their product to ESPN as a mm-hmm. season. And I think the fighters just should negotiate for a percentage of the television rights because that's what the UFC is selling to ESPN. And that's what the fighters are providing. They are literally the chum. <laughs> and I like that. That's the low bar. Like, I expect, I hope that one day, maybe they'll like be paid like other sports. <laughs> like that, yeah. that sounds so idealistic mm-hmm. to have this, this like very small thing that should be happening. Uh, but I, I will take that. I will consider it mild optimism. And I think we should go close on that note. Uh, thank you so much. I guess before we go, um, anything you want 
our listeners to go check out? I imagine the book, of course, but this is your space. Plug your social media, projects, books, everything you have going on right now. Well, I am excited to share that come July, I'm hiring a, uh, I guess, a consultant to teach me how to set up a streaming studio. And Ooh. I will end up either on YouTube or Twitch um, or if a brand new social media, uh, you know, platform emerges that I have to learn about on, between now and July 1st, okay, I'll do that instead. But I hope to by, I guess, September. In September, I should have two kids in school and have like real days to myself to work. Um, I'm going to start live drawing um, during the week so you could see the book as it's being made rather than this being a once a year like explosion, you know, let's let's have a nice drip, a nice steady drip of art that comes out. People can talk about, you know, the fights that are happening right now. Like I kind of am thrilled about the idea that, you know, when something like uh, what just happened, um, Panzanibio uh, versus Baeza. Like, man, I want to like spend like, so that happens on Saturday, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday. I want to be drawing that. I want to be chatting with people Mm -hmm. about whether or not that's one of the best of the year. So that's Mm -hmm. where I'm heading. Uh, That's the, the, that was supposed to be the goal for volume two, but you know, a bunch of stuff happened in the world. So now we're going to try again, volume three, live streaming studio. Um, I'm on Twitter like every day, an uncomfortable amount. (laughs) Aren't we all? (laughs) At Rini MMA, I'm on, uh, and then ChrisRini.com. The book is only five bucks if you want to get a digital version. Uh, There's only a couple copies left of the hard copy. I ship worldwide. I know you're asking me if I'd send to Mexico. It's like, you know, I'll tell you something. I lose money sometimes when I have to ship out the way to to Mm -hmm. across the world. But you know, that's like what you got to do when you're starting out. So it's okay. I'm I'm kind of happy that I have people around the world that want this. It's going to say when you have international fans. Yeah. Hey. Come to we, the territory. Going worldwide, baby. <laughs> uh, Jordan should include like Pitbull. Jordan, our producer, like <laughs> worldwide. Maybe we'll have a clip here. Maybe not. Die. Maybe it'll just be in your imagination. <laughs> <laughs> I'll take it. <laughs> Chris, thank you so much uh, for being here today again. Thank you all at home for listening. Thank you. Who is the random person I'm going to thank today? I will not thank a person. I will thank art for being cool. <laughs> we like art. <laughs> we love art. Wonderful. <laughs> and I, I would think a specific artist, but like I know a lot of them are problematic. So yep. I don't want to. Yep. It's true. Frida Kahlo. Let's thank Frida Kahlo. She's amazing. We're Mm -hmm. allowed to love her, and I'm in Mexico, so it feels thematic. Oh, that's perfect. Uh, (laughs) And and, uh, yes, that is it. This has been the best camp of my life. I will see you all next week.